I'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 13. Acts 13, 13 through 30 is the text for this morning's sermon. There are Bibles in front of you in the pews. Acts 13, 13 through 30. Now Paul and his company set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they passed on from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you that fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he bore with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance for about four hundred and fifty years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's posterity, God has, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he had promised. Before his coming, John had preached a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you that fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Though they could charge him with nothing deserving death, yet they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now that's an amazing text because it is so saturated with the activity of God. I don't know if you felt that as you read through. God did it. God did it. God did it. God did it. Sixteen times in fifteen verses, the sermon verses, God did it. That's an amazing, that's an amazing way of preaching. This is the first sermon that we hear from the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And uh, it clues us in to the way this mind works. It has two points, this sermon, two main points. Uh, one we'll look at next Sunday, one we're going to look at today. The one next Sunday I'm going to take from verse 39. So if you want to pray towards next Sunday's message and invite people with a view to what I'm going to say. Verse 39 says, uh, in him you can be freed from everything which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. Jesus means freedom from everything that Moses couldn't free you from. And so that's one point of the sermon. Everything is tending towards salvation in Jesus and freedom in Jesus. Now, the other point of the sermon, the 
beneath point, the supporting point, is behind Jesus, there's a story. And it's God's story. That's the point. God wrote the story. God acted the story. God went into the story and became the central actor of the story. So what I want to do with you, before we get to the application part of this sermon where we'll talk about newscasts and spelling bees, I want to walk with you through the 15 places where Paul says God did it. Because I want you to feel the impact of this repetitive way of putting God at the center of what happened in history. All right? Let's start at verse 17. Number one, God chose Israel. From all the peoples, it was God who did it. They didn't choose themselves. They didn't walk into the covenant. God reached down and chose Abraham. Second, middle of verse 17. God made the people great while they were in Egypt. They weren't great because they were so fertile or so wise or so obedient. God made them great, it says. God did it. Third, end of verse 17. God led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. In other words, God flexed his muscles in Egypt in order to demonstrate he is a mighty and powerful deliverer. Number four, verse 18, God bore with Israel in the wilderness. Now, there's a little interesting thing here. Sometimes in Greek manuscripts, there is not a certainty as to what some of the letters are, because in the old manuscripts written by hand and manuscripts are deteriorated and so on, one of the letters is uncertain in this word. And if you change one little squiggle in this letter... It either means he bore with a moody and disobedient child, or the other is he bore him like on piggyback and carried him and took care of him. And uh, the latter is quoted or mentioned in Deuteronomy 1.31. He bore his son through the wilderness. So I'm not sure, neither are most of the textual critics, critics sure, either one is theologically true, but here... God is the actor. That's the one point we can be sure of. Either bearing with a recalcitrant child or bearing up on his shoulders a child in a mood of happiness and trust. Number five. God, verse 19, first half of the verse. God destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. God did it. And of course, the Israelites wielded the sword. The Israelites shot the arrows. The Israelites rode on the horses, but it says God pushed the people out. So there's, a, there's a theology there that sees man acting and says God is acting. Listen to Proverbs 21 and 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Now you can do whatever you want to make ready for fighting in battle, and God decides who wins. God is the main warrior on the field. He decides. Number six, second half of verse 19. God gave the land to Israel. God gave Canaan to Israel as an inheritance. Now that word inheritance really strikes the note of God's ownership, doesn't it? You can't give to somebody something as an inheritance that you don't own. 
So God owned the land. These Canaanites were there in trust, tenant farmers sort of, and they became so wicked and so idolatrous, it says in Deuteronomy 9, God said, I'm going to push them off and make that the promised land for my people. And he gives it to them as an inheritance. And someday, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, the whole earth is going to be given to the meek for an inheritance. God owns the whole world. He owns the universe. So God is the main actor here. He moves people off his land. He puts his people on the land. He owns the land. God is central. Number seven, verse 20. God gave them judges for all those years. So Samson and the others rose up, Gideon, Deborah. They didn't just choose. God raised them up. Number eight, verse 21. God gave to Israel her first king, Saul. Number nine, verse 22, first half of the verse, God removed Saul. So he, he put him there and he took him down. That's, that's a biblical teaching about the authority of God over the kings of the earth. Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Or Daniel 4.32, the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So he puts Saul there and when... His time was up. He took Saul down. Number 10, verse 22, second half of the verse. God raised up David, son of Jesse, a man after his own heart. So he goes out and he finds a boy who likes to play on the harp and write poems and use a slingshot. He says, that's my king. I'll make that boy king. God's at work here. Nobody in all of Israel would have chosen David. Little shepherd boy out with the sheep playing his harp shooting his sling, and God says, there's the king. God's at work in choosing David. Number 11, verse 23. It was God who brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. God brought him. Didn't just say he came, God brought him. And it wasn't as though he just sort of brought him in the sense of being the amorphous historical force or power in the world, because it says, as he promised. And when you read those words, as he promised, then you know, oh, I see, God's been at work long time ago planning and writing in the Bible, and now he is working in history to bring, in accordance with what he said there, Jesus here. So this is a personal God who plans things and sees that they get written down in Scripture. Number 12, verses 24 to 25. Now, this one is not a statement explicitly of God's working. Rather... It's an indirect way of saying the Jesus that was just brought by God onto the scene is the center person of history. Look how he says it by quoting John the Baptist. John says, I'm not he. I'm not the Messiah. No, but after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, Jesus said John was the greatest man who was ever born of woman. That's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Greatest man who's ever born of woman. And John says, I'm not worthy to untie the shoes of Jesus. Point, Jesus is the greatest human that ever was or will be. He is the centerpiece of history. Jesus is. Number 13, verse 26. He says, to us has been sent this message of salvation. Now, when it says, has been sent to us, to me, Paul, and to you now in this synagogue has been sent a message of salvation. Who is the actor behind that passive verb? Has been sent. God is. 
God sent the gospel to Paul. God sent the gospel now through Paul to these synagogues there in Antioch of Pisidia. God not only planned it back here and promised it, God not only brought the Savior, Jesus, into the world, God is now sending the message of salvation where he pleases and according to his own plan and power. Number 14, verse 27. These next two are really interesting. Talk about prophecy being fulfilled in a very peculiar way. Here he's talking about people who didn't know his book very well, didn't know God very well, were out of step, and yet fulfilled prophecy. Let's read this verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Now, why did he write it like that? Why did Paul preach it like that? Why did he go out of his way to say that the very people who fulfill the prophecies didn't know the prophecies? Didn't understand them. Why did he say it that way? Because God did it. That's the only explanation. If you knew the prophecies and you were strategizing, oh, here's what God wrote, i got to make sure it gets done. Then you might say, well, they partnered with God or something like that. Well, they didn't partner with God. They had no intention of fulfilling prophecies when they killed Jesus. God did it. God was at work when his son was killed. Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. God did it. 15. Same thing. Same point. And when... They had fulfilled all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So there it is again. People fulfilling what was written by God in the Old Testament today by his power. It's the same theology, by the way, of Peter in his first sermon back in Acts 2.23, remember? where Peter said, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was doing it. Number 16, finally, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. God did it. Now let's think about this for a minute. Don't take that kind of narrative for granted. I mean, you might read that and say, oh, that's the way the Bible always talks. (laughs) It's not the way the Bible always talks, and it's surely not the way we always talk. I mean, when you when you narrate what happened to you last week or last year in 1992, do you say, God did it, and 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 God did it? Is that the way you talk? No. And Paul didn't have to talk that way. He chose to preach this way to make a point, to make a statement. And if we just say, oh, that's Bible talk. We missed the whole point. Missed the forest for the trees, or maybe the trees for the forest. It's it, it's intentional. God did it. 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 Get it? God is the central actor in history. It's no throwaway word here. He chose to preach that way when he could have used verbs with different subjects to say the same thing, except missed the whole point. He is consciously narrating history to make a point, and the point is this. There is a great and glorious God. 
know him. Reckon with him. See him at work in the world. Don't take him for granted. Don't read the world without him as the central subject of your reading. He is the main explanation for every event and every circumstance in the universe and in your life and in American culture. Which means now, think about this. We live in an age where people don't believe this. They do not believe that God is the main reality to be reckoned with, that God is that which gives meaning to everything, and therefore we live in an incredibly superficial age, an incredibly naive age. I mean, you talk about naivete and superficiality, it is everywhere in American culture. Let me define superficiality for you so you'll know what I mean when I, in just a minute, indict just about everything in American culture with superficiality. Superficiality is when you discuss events or circumstances or situations or reality without dealing with the most important connections And the most important things. That's superficial. It's superficial to discuss a thing, to deal with a thing, and leave out of account the most important thing that has to do with that thing. Right? I hope we all agree on that definition of superficiality. It is superficial to treat candles, pianos, preachers, sermons, Bible, architecture, life. It's superficial to treat those things and not to talk about the most important connections those things have with the most important realities. That's superficial. That's my definition. Therefore, everything in American culture just about is superficial. News reports are superficial. History books, almost all of them are superficial. Virtually all public education is superficial. Editorial and news commentary is superficial. Why? Because of the incredible, unimaginable disregard for God Almighty. Disregard for God makes anything superficial because God is the main reality and the meaning of all things he made have their basic meaning from him and for him. From him, through him, to him are all things. If you don't bring things into relation to God, you treat them superficially. That's the only choice you've got, given the definition of superficiality. Not dealing with the connections with the most important realities that give sense and meaning to those things. Someone might object, you're talking about religion. That's religion you're talking about. You, you don't mean to bring religion into the schools. I mean, you don't mean to bring religion into the newscast. I mean, what are you trying to do? Turn the whole, make religion, everything religion? And here's my answer to that. It's not religion, it's reality. I'm just talking reality. I'm just talking religion. I hate the word religion. I don't care about religion. 
I'm talking reality. God is. He made everything. He governs everything. He designs everything. He destines everything. You don't understand anything if you don't understand it in relation to God, except superficially. You know, it's just amazing how much we are infected with secular superficiality as a church. It is amazing. We sometimes think liberalism, that's bad. Liberalism, they don't take the Bible seriously, they don't take God seriously. Bad, bad. The conservative, fundamental, evangelical church is so infected with this kind of division between religion and reality. News, education, sports, entertainment. That's reality and religion. You can have your religion. You can do whatever you want on Sunday. You can pray to whoever you want. You can talk about that any way you want. But when you get over here, we know the rules. And the rules is it's closed. It's closed. Don't bring God in. You leave that there. The conservative, evangelical, fundamental church has bought that through and through in the nature of our evangelism and the nature of our sanctification. And what we want to do is kind of pluck a few people out of this circle, kind of put them in our religion. Have religion over here. Nice, conservative, clean, safe religion. And so when you go to work, you don't think there might be a God answer to the policy question. When you go to school, you don't think there might be a, a God reason for geometry. It's just to enter your mind because you're infected with secular superficiality. Now, Paul, in preaching here, was preaching to unbelievers. He's evangelizing. He's an evangelist. But you know what evangelists have to do in certain situations? They have to tell two stories. They first have to tell a God story. Then they have to tell a salvation story. If you don't know the God story, what are you going to do with the salvation story? First, you have to hear God did it, God did it, God did it, God did it, get it, now get right with God. And if you don't know God did it, what you going to do is get right with God? God who? We are so infected with a God-disregarding, God-ignoring, secular mindset that we watch television and it never strikes us as strange that God is Absent. It strikes us as strange because we just have bought their agenda. God is religion. Television is reality. Or newspaper is reality. Or public education is reality. Wrong. God is reality. And that is superficial. Everything. When I pray for my boys, and I pray for my boys a lot, Calvin Christian School, Roosevelt High School, Bethel College now. When I pray for my boys, I say, God, would you please, by your mighty power and your Holy Spirit, cause my sons to see everything in relation to you. Grant that they would see English and world studies and geometry and P.E. And spelling in relationship 
to you. Grant that they would ask the right questions about where did this subject come from, given God is creator and controller of the world? How is this subject to be done and how am I involved in it and what difference does it make in my life as a believer who wants to obey and honor you? Where's it all going, God, in relationship to your purposes? Show them how to ask the right questions. Don't let them ever deal with any subject without you. I don't care what the teacher says. You put yourself on the agenda of every page in every book, whether it's the spelling book or the religion book. And I can hear somebody say Spelling? I'm sure. What do you want to do? Have a, a Christian spelling book? I used to hear that kind of cynical response to a plea for God-centeredness in all things. Yeah, right. Christians should have their own way of spelling. Ah, 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 ah. And, and once, you, once you use that cynical statement, the conversation is over and the God-ignoring superficiality remains. Let's take spelling for an example, okay? You have kids, you've got to take spelling for an example. When your son says, why should I have to spell like everybody else spells? Why can't I just spell the way it sounds? Or the way I like to spell? That's a, that's a reasonable question. You should have an answer to that question. And I think we'd all answer the same. We, we move down now about a millimeter below superficiality, and we answer, well, the reason you should spell like everybody else spells is because you should care about communication, and you should not want to put unnecessary barriers between your verbal expression on paper and getting your ideas across to others. You should, you should want to get those barriers out of the way and communicate well. Good, we've moved down one millimeter below superficiality. We've all answered the same thing. Well, children will not leave you at that point. Here's the next question. Why should I care about communicating well? What difference does that make? I mean, I don't care if there are barriers between what I write and what others say. What I care, I get them along. I don't need to convince them of anything. What I care. Now we're two millimeters below superficiality. And God is on the scene. God is on the scene already. Now, you can keep him off the scene. If you want to go the secular route and stay superficial, you can answer that question like this. You can say, well, if you don't care about communication, then you won't succeed in business. Or two, if you don't care about communication and get barriers out of the way, then you won't make much money. Or three, if you don't care about communication, then you won't advance in the community and hold responsible positions. Or four, and this is the great 20th century God substitute, if you don't care about communication and be able to communicate well so you get good feedback, you won't have good self-esteem. Now, that, that that's an answer. That is the only answer. Two millimeters below superficiality that is allowed in our culture is not the right answer. It's not at least a deep answer. What is the answer? I'll tell you what the right answer is. It's not all the right answer because you could write a book on why you should want to spell correctly. You could. 
part of the right answer is this. First, whoever of my sons asked that question, you should want, I mean, you should care about communication and want to get barriers out of the way because you were created in the image of God. And he's a communicator through and through. Praise his name. If he weren't a communicator, if he didn't care about clear communication, where would we be? And you're in his image. Care about clear communication. Second, you should care about clear communication and getting barriers out of the way in the sharing of your ideas because you've got something infinitely important to communicate. God's truth. How can you be indifferent if you've got God's truth? Third, you should care about good communication, clarity, getting barriers out of the way when people read what you write because God is love. And you should be like God in his love. And if you have precious truth inside and you act indifferent to whether or not that truth gets shared in effective and clear ways, you're not loving and you're not like God. And fourth, you should care about clear communication, removing all the barriers out of the way. Because communication and language was God's idea from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And God is not a God of chaos or a God of anarchy. Not even spelling anarchy. That's the right answer. Now listen, this is not a sermon about spelling. It's a sermon about God and a sermon about American superficiality, which most of us, many of us, have bought into. Letting the world dictate to us what kind of answers are legitimate to come out of our mouths, created in the image of God and put here as salt of the earth and light of the world. And we let the world tell us where we can give God answers and where we can give superficial answers. Listen, my plea to you, my deep desire and prayer for Bethlehem and the evangelical church is that when you go to work tomorrow morning and a question rises, you give a God answer. They don't have to believe it. But if you don't care, if you don't care about going beneath the two millimeters where most answers are given in the secular media and public education, if you don't care, who is going to care? Tell me, who's going to tell America God's way? If you just let them dictate the terms and you have your little little religion. I live here. We like each other at Bethlehem. Come over here. And then you just go out and let the world write your agenda at work. Who's going to do what Paul did? God did it. 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 What's God got to do with the Super Bowl? The final four. The Soviet Union. The economy. The stock market. Listen, all you business people. You have a tremendous calling. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world by means of love coming through your heart and truth, God-centered truth coming out of your mouth. And if you renounce that calling, 
God is going to hold you accountable for many people's souls. Now, mark it. I am not telling you to carry the four laws in your pocket. I think that's a good idea or something like it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God relates to pencil sharpeners. And if you don't know how, you've just been addicted by the world. That's all. You need to go before the Lord on your face and say, how do you relate to my work? How do you relate to my car? How do you relate to my parking place? How do you relate to my secretary? How do you relate to my computer? What do you have to do with my life? Help me to think you and to speak you everywhere all the time. That's your calling. You're not called to be religious. You're called to be real. And God is real. Let's pray. Lord, would you make this plea a reality now? Just come. And anybody in this room who does not know you and can't even begin to do what I'm calling for here, demonstrate your power to them right now, I pray. Reveal your son. Get them back next week to hear the other part of the story. That on the basis of this great God-centered history, there is a plan of salvation and that Jesus means forgiveness and freedom. I'm going to invite the uh, prayer teams to come and join me here while I finish praying and just stand here. I want you to know that these, these friends have been praying earnestly downstairs that that they would be of use to you here at the end of the service. And it may be that you have some special burden in your life this week or some sickness in your family or in yourself or some relationship that's really hard right now or you just need help being God-centered. They'd love to take a minute after the service if you come up and pray together with them. They'd pray for you. Father, I pray that this Advent season, when scarcely any of the world is anything but superficial about Christmas, would be transformed in many offices around the city now, that many lunchtime conversations would be different, that many spontaneous questions asked in the office would find stunning answers, like Bartimaeus turning up at the gate. Into your hands, Lord, I commit this congregation. Lord, empower us, I pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.